wish I were in a long sea voyage somewhere. Not too much deck tennis, no frantic dancing, and no responsibility. Why me? I look around that bridge. I see the men waiting for me to make the next move. And Bones? What if I'm wrong? Captain, I don't really expect an answer. But I've got one. Something I seldom say to a customer, Jim. In this galaxy, there's a mathematical probability of three million Earth-type planets. And in all of the universe, three million million galaxies like this. And in all of that, and perhaps more, only one of each of us. Don't destroy the one named Kirk. In the 1966 Star Trek episode, Balance of Terror, Captain James Tiberius Kirk is feeling the draining weight of Starship Command. He's feeling depressed by his life-and-death responsibilities. Kirk's good friend, Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy, comes to re-motivate his captain, get him back on his feet in a time of crisis. And Bones does this by administering the best medicine known to the cosmos an order-of-magnitude perspective on our uniqueness in the universe. Today on Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast, my co-host Elise Cutts and I attempt to estimate our own uniqueness in the universe in an episode dedicated to the Drake Equation. All right, welcome back to Strange New Worlds. I'm joined again, as always, by Elise Cutts. Hi, as always. We're just getting back to that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're, you're... Hopefully, as always, from, from now on. Right. You had a nice hiatus over in Edinburgh, but you're back. You joined us for last week's episode, and we're starting our series of astrobiology-related episodes now, mm-hmm. as we discussed last time. Last time we teased that we would do a Drake Equation episode, so that's exactly what we're going to bring you today, a discussion about the Drake Equation in real life and in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. So I've got some trivia nuggets for you, Elise, (laughs) about the Drake Equation in Star Trek. Okay, we'll see if I know any of these. Okay. All right. Well, a lot of these come from Mike and Denise Akuda's article on 1701news.com that I read. 1701news. Yeah, not a random number. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Mike and Denise Okuda are probably best known, at least they're, they're best known to me as the authors, the co-authors of the Star Trek Encyclopedia, of which there are, I think, four different editions now. And uh, Mike Okuda was a scenic artist, graphic designer, and technical consultant on Star Trek, I believe, beginning with The Next Generation. Uh, and moving forwards through all the incarnations up until Discovery. I don't think he's working on Discovery. And his wife, Denise Akuda, was a production assistant that started, I think, in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Mm, and what, a good, what a good movie to start on. Yeah, and she helped out with the graphic design on, on multiple incarnations of Star Trek TV shows as well. And so when people ask me who my favorite Star Trek couple is, it's always Mike and Denise Akuda, and nobody <laughs> expects that. But they're really the creative force behind a lot of what Star Trek looks and feels like. And Mike Akuda actually was such a renowned graphic designer that he even designed some NASA mission patch logos and still consults on really cool things like that. Anyhow, so they wrote this article because they know basically everything there is to know about (laughs) Star Trek, um, about the Drake equation in Star Trek. And so first of all, what is the Drake equation? So the Drake equation is basically just an attempt to quantify how many transmitting civilizations, transmitting as in they're producing 
technology that we could detect with our technology right now there are in the universe. And there are lots of variations on the Drake equation that we're probably gonna mention a little bit, but at its most basic, it's just an attempt to combine what we know about what the universe looks like, how many stars there are, how many planets there are around each star, how many of those planets are Earth-like, etc., etc. the rate of production of stars, with some estimates that kind of form this biotechnical fudge factor for how likely we think it is for a civilization to develop and get to a point where it can transmit and then survive long enough for us to receive its transmissions. So that's basically the Drake Equation. So the Drake Equation was formulated by, as you might guess, somebody named Drake, <laughs> Dr. Frank Drake in 1961. And he wasn't actually that interested in trying to figure out a numerical value for the number of transmitting civilizations in the galaxy. He actually just wanted to sort of outline the agenda for the first scientific meeting for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is otherwise known as SETI. And so this was 1961, just a few years before Gene Roddenberry would first launch his epic TV series, Star Trek. Star Trek. <laughs> and uh, so Gene Roddenberry actually heard of this meeting. He heard of the Drake equation, and he really wanted to use it in his <laughs> 1964 pitch for his TV show called Star Trek. Oh and he wanted to include this equation because he wanted to use it as proof that real scientists took the possibility of extraterrestrial life seriously. seriously? <laughs> but he had no idea what it looked like. Um, oh and boy. this was back in the day when you couldn't just... You Look know, it you, up, Yeah, right? you, you can't just Google Drake equation, right? And there's a Caltech connection here. He actually phoned his friend who worked at Caltech, and mm -hmm. he was like, dude... Or do that. I probably a dude though. Back Did in those Caltech days. even have women during the? Oh, I used to know the the year that Caltech admitted women. You know, he might students. not have had the internet, but I do. Yeah. So okay. Okay. Right <laughs> I'll, I'll come back to you with an important update about when Caltech allowed first women. To yes. Um, well, Gene Roddenberry phoned a friend at Caltech and said, "Hey, could you please look up what the Drake equation is?" and that friend took a really long time getting back to Gene, uh, and the production studio said, hey, where's your document? We need your pitch for your new TV show. And Gene and Alice Fluster forgot all about this fake equation in his pitch. So it survived, and nobody at the TV studio even batted an eye. They didn't even question this absolutely horrendous equation that Gene had written. Were there some exponents in there or There something? were a few exponents in there. So the equation, as it is written by Frank Drake looks like this. N equals, and then a bunch of numbers multiplied against each other. Yep. N is the number of transmitting civilizations in the galaxy, and the things that are multiplied against each other are the rate of star formation, the fraction of stars that have planets, the number of Earth-like planets per planetary system, the fraction of those planets that generate life, the fraction of those life-bearing planets that generate intelligent life, the fraction of those planets that generate civilization, and then the lifetime of a civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and I, I did find out when Caltech led in its first female students. And that was? was 1970. Oh, wow. So yeah. it definitely was a dude then. Yep. Well, yeah, times I, have I changed. didn't realize it was that recent, yeah, actually. Times yeah. have changed in it's wild. Such, such a short amount of time, it's, but for the better. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost 50-50 now, which yeah. is pretty impressive, considering how recently it was happened. Uh -huh. yeah. Well, continuing on, so Gene Roddenberry... Uh, lied. <laughs> messed up badly. Okay, so his equation reads, and I don't know what anything actually stands for, but it reads capital E times <laughs> F squared times in parentheses MGE, close parentheses, minus C to the power one times <laughs> RI to the power one times M, but not to the power one, just M, just M. <laughs> equals L divided by S naught to the power star. Anyhow, so hey, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that is an equation for something. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're going to have a whole other podcast speculating <laughs> about what those things that. are. Um, <laughs> anyhow, so fast forward many decades, mm -hmm. and Mike Akuda is working on Star Trek Voyager and actually rings up Dr. Frank Drake mm -hmm. to consult on this episode called Future's End, which is an epic two-parter in which Voyager travels back in time to Los Angeles. 
And there happens to be a SETI scientist in this episode, so Mike Akuta wanted to get some facts right about how SETI would actually work. And talked to Frank Drake, and during the conversation, Drake found out about Gene Roddenberry using a phony version of his equation and said, hey, can I take a look at that? (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) And um, Frank Drake seemed really amused that he had played a (laughs) semi-pivotal role in making Star Trek be what it is. Um, But he pointed out exactly what you pointed out, Elise. He said, hey, you know, like those numbers c to the power one and ri to the power <laughs> one it's just c and ri so um yeah anyhow the it's 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 a little funny history but there is a poster in the SETI researchers computer lab her name is rain robinson yeah rain robinson. Uh, played by sarah silverman and she has the drake equation the right drake equation mm-hmm. on the board behind her computer monitor yep Part of it's concealed, but if you know what it is, it's really obvious. Yeah. Apparently, according to Mike Akuda, the fake Drake equation is also on that poster, just below the real one, but mm-hmm. concealed by the computer oh, that's monitor. that's so funny. Yeah. That's a good piece of trivia. It is. So anyhow, so the Drake equation is a real thing that real scientists deal with, and it also has actually appeared in Star Trek in multiple different forms. Yes. <laughs> so Some more real than others. <laughs> so Elise and I, to prepare for this episode of Strange New Worlds, decided to re-watch Future's End mm-hmm. Parts 1 and 2. And so I thought we could just spend a couple of minutes talking about that, and then we can jump into our order of magnitude estimation for... For how alone we are. Exactly. Or how not alone we are. Yeah. Yeah. So... Elise, we've been watching a lot of Star Trek Discovery lately, as oh, yeah. probably everybody who's been listening to this podcast. So <laughs> if you're not, just stop. Stop <laughs> listening. Go scrub CBS All Access off of somebody you know who has it and just watch it. Just just do it. Just stop right now. Right? We'll still be here. Pause. Have, have you done it? Are you good? Have you watched Star Trek Discovery? All right, we're good. We're assuming <laughs> we can spoil everything now. Yes. All right. Yeah. We're... Spoiler warning: that pause was for your benefit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't blame us. All right. So after having binged a bunch of Star Trek Discovery <laughs> episodes, as we assume you just did, <laughs> uh, and caught up to what is it, episode eleven now that we're at, wow. something like that. Yeah. yeah. So at least, what does it feel like to go back and watch an episode of Voyager? They're so cute. Oh, yes, they are. (laughs) They're so cute. I'm just like, wait, where's the psychological trauma? Where's the blood dripping off the table? Where's, where, where's Spock's dad with a beard? Where's, where's Captain Lorca being really sketchy? Like, it's just, the morals are just so clean cut in Mm -hmm. old Star Trek. It's, it's very relaxing to watch. It's just a very, like, I think you described it as being surrounded by, like, old friends, especially because Voyager is your series you grew up on, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even grow up on Voyager or anything, but it was very relaxing, whereas I feel like when I'm watching Discovery, I'm just sort of, like, clenching my fists and, like, on literally on the edge of my seat and just, like, tapping my foot and twitching, whereas with Star Trek, old Star Trek, I'm just sitting back and, like, enjoying this this interesting story and like yes there's some tension but i mean i know it's all gonna turn out okay whereas i could completely see star trek discovery ending with it doesn't turn out okay everyone dies the war continues sadness all around everyone dies in the mirrorverse like i don't feel like there's a promise of a resolution in new star trek whereas there's it's just a a much brighter more stable federation a much more I think it, I mean, we talk a lot about the Roddenberry rule, but it's really true that they violated it. I think it's good. It keeps it fresh enough to keep up with, like, the grittier stuff that we're used to seeing nowadays. But it is really relaxing to go back and just, you know, remember why Star Trek was different than all the other gritty Mm sci-fi. Yeah. Also, the the visual effects are really funny. (laughs) The visual (laughs) effects are really funny. There's a spaceship in this episode. There's a time ship. And my first reaction to seeing it come on screen, when they like pulled up, they're like, put it on screen. And uh, I was just like, wow, those cutting edge effects. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this episode aired 
I don't know if you want to reveal how old you are. No, no, you can, you can do it. Tell okay. me, tell me when it aired. Well, I want to know. It, it aired one year before you were born. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing that they went back in time to 1996, and that's not a, a, an accident that it was actually. No, watch it, watch it be made in like 1998 or something. Oh, <laughs> I am 20. <laughs> for context, no, for yeah, those, it, those it of you who want to know but are too lazy to do the math. <laughs> okay. Yes. So this episode came out in 1996. Man. Which was a year before you were born. Now I understand why my mom's hair looked the way it did in all those pictures of her holding me as a baby. <laughs> did your mom's hair look like Janeway's she, hair She had a perm. Oh, wow. She's, like, yeah, she did. Okay. I'm sure our podcasters are all very interested. In yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. She, I mean, okay, let's be real. If you're my age, your mom had a perm. It happened. You have to... You have to know this, and if you're watching Star Trek, you've seen some crazy hairstyles. This is this is relevant. It's, indeed, this indeed. is relevant to basket hair. <laughs> Yeoman Rand. Well, <laughs> this episode aired six years into my life, yeah. and I remember watching Voyager like it was the coolest thing on television. <laughs> you know, and so those special effects that Man. look pretty ratty today, I was like, oh my god, god that's what space looks like. like. I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> you no. still want to be an astronaut. So here, so here's the thing, like I. I haven't watched this episode in many, many years. Definitely not since I came to Caltech. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that Caltech was actually mentioned. Caltech in is episode. in it. Yeah, we got name dropped. So, and GPL. Yeah. Yep. For those of you who haven't seen this episode in a while either, basically what happens is that Rain Robinson, the SETI astronomer, detects Voyager in orbit of Earth and then calls the person who's funding her, who is this evil megalomaniac. <laughs> He's like if Elon Musk had a, like, agenda for destroying the world well profiting a lot and not caring about whether or not the world got destroyed maybe yeah <laughs> we're not gonna go too far into this <laughs> comparison <laughs> well his name is henry starling mm -hmm. and he's basically acquired technology from the 29th century the crashed time ship and he single-handedly started the computer revolution in this timeline of humanity's future or past. Or past. Oh dear. Yeah. This is why time travel. This is why Janeway was like, I hate time travel. Yeah. Um, Janeway just got us all right there. That's why they only do like one time travel episode every two seasons. Right. It's yeah. exhausting. It is super exhausting, but also one of my favorite sci-fi tropes. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. Okay. What was I trying to explain? JPL. Oh, right. So yeah. So she, she calls Henry Starling mm -hmm. and explains that, hey, I found the thing that you always told me to look out for. Here it is. And then Henry gets all mad at her when he finds out. You know what that little brat did? She emailed a friend of hers at JPL who called his professor at Caltech. She's a security risk. Go to Griffith, get the data, get rid of her. Yes, sir. And so right now, Elise <laughs> and I could do nothing else other than to speculate about who that advisor would be. <laughs> okay, okay. So if, if you were an astronomer hmm. working in LA, first of all, I don't think that SETI is based at the Griffiths Observatory. It's not. It's definitely not. But it never was. Let's just say, <laughs> let's say you it was. were. Yeah. Uh, and you had to contact somebody at JPL who would then contact somebody at Caltech who knew anything about astronomy. Mm -hmm. Who do you think it would be? Oh, well... We did some, some quick Googling. So, you know, our first thought was sort of the, the old guard at Caltech. So there are some, like, big names in planetary science. There's Dave Stevenson, who's anything ever known about a planet ever is in some way due to Dave Stevenson doing something. There's Annie Ingersoll. There's your advisor, Yuck. Yuck, um, There's... Um, but I think we ended up deciding that it would be a young, energetic professor who would take an interest in the possibility of aliens in the 1990s. Back when he was young. Back when and... he was young and not disillusioned with the world. And we did some Google searching. <laughs> and we found out that good old at Pluto killer Mike Brown. You can find him at Twitter at, at Pluto killer. That is the man who killed Pluto and predicted Planet Nine with Constantine Batygin, who's another professor at Caltech. He got his job at Caltech at a, as a professor in 1996. Yeah. So, of course, they would call Mike Brown at Caltech. I, I, I like this theory mm -hmm. very much. Yeah. That um, Rain Wilson would have... Uh, this is why he Rain hates Wilson. astrobiology so much. I just called her Rain Wilson, who is the guy who plays Harry Mudd in the new Star Trek. Really? Oh, yeah, sorry. Okay. No, no. Rain, Rain Robinson. Robinson. Rain Robinson. Yes, would would 
Oh my god, did you just say that's why Mike Brown hates, hates astrobiology <laughs> so much? He got really excited about it early in his career and like did all this stuff. He's like, you know all of his early Europa research? Oh, what yeah. it's all mm -hmm. about. But he's just bitter. You know, he was he, led on he by even these did some aliens. Titan things. Okay, yeah. Okay. He so, did Titan? So that's wow. that's really funny. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> yes. So Mike Brown uh, was contacted over a chain of events by Voyager traveling back in time to 1996 in his early professorhood when he was trying to make his mark in Caltech and earn his tenure. He got really excited about this project about an unidentified object sighted in the sky, thought it could be aliens, and then got disillusioned when he couldn't get anywhere. And got mad and killed a planet. Essentially. Yeah. Ten years later. You know, I really like this timeline. Maybe this is what happened in the Star Trek universe. <laughs> it might not be what happened in our universe, but you know, Star Trek has taught us anything. There are multiple possibilities in this world. Well, let's add to this, this, timeline, <laughs> this timeline because we never got to find out exactly what happened to Rain Robinson's career. Mm. And so she could still be at SETI. She could. The SETI Institute is a real thing. They hire scientists of all different types to study astrobiology. You know, maybe in her timeline, she's the one who found the wow signal. I'm trying to think about when that was. When was, when was that? It was later I than 96, right? I mean, said he's been around since the 60s. Yeah, I was thinking. Maybe that it was, was 77. Oh, yeah. sad. Maybe her mom found the, the wow signal. Yeah. Or, or her dad. <laughs> and said <Someone>. groovy. <laughs> said groovy. Yeah, oh man. No, what would her career be like though? She could have ended up with JPL if she <laughs> stayed in LA. Could have stayed at SETI. But yeah, I'm kind of disappointed they didn't flesh out what happened to her because they, they set her up as a sort of like very compelling character who could have very easily, you know, after he gets back to the ship, Paris goes and like looks her up in a database and finds out that she did something like crazy cool. Mm -hmm. But no, he just kisses her and then disappears. Yeah. Know? And then tells Tuvok he's a freakosaurus, which is it's something she coined. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's her mark on the Star Trek universe right there. Tuvok is a freakosaurus. Tuvok is certainly a freakosaurus. Maybe that'll be the title of this episode. <laughs> Tuvok is a freakosaurus. Uh, okay, anything else that we should talk about uh, related to this episode? Um, hmm. Oh, it was interesting. It just reminded me, seeing the half-Klingon crew member and then thinking about what Klingons look like now in the in Discovery, I'm just like, Belana Torres, you have how, hair. How, yeah, she has Well, maybe that could be from her human parent. <laughs> but it's making me think of when Lorca was talking to Tyler in jail, um, the like Klingon ship, and Tyler mentions that, oh, the, the Klingon captain is taking a liking to him. And Lorca's like, you don't even have the right number of organs for her. And so, so we've sort of, you know, we've established that there's an organ discrepancy. And so... This makes me, and also I can't think of any human who would be like, ah, oh, yeah, gonna gonna settle me down with some Klingon. Some and, like it rough, you know. <laughs> well, you know that would I can justify that with like Worf, but like not the new Klingons are so alien. It almost feels like it violates, especially the whole like you don't even have enough organs. It implies some kind of reproductive incapability. That could also be. I was thinking about that a little more, and it could also be a like a really deep cut in joke for really nerdy Star Trek fans who are into Klingon biology. Mm -hmm. This is funny because I was looking back at the Boldly Go videos that oh we were doing God. and the trivia things. And uh, I asked the people who were playing Klingons in this Caltech musical that we did mm -hmm. about Klingon biology. Because um, <laughs> I knew one of them. Actually, Heidi. Heidi, who was on this uh, podcast an episode. Did Heidi actually know? Five. Yeah. Heidi, Heidi had uh, actually done her research on Klingon biology and was really fascinated by the fact that they had redundant organs, mm -hmm. which really makes evolutionary sense for a warrior-like race. Class, yeah. yeah. You know, like, if your reproductive uh, future can get you know, destroyed, you might want to have extras. <laughs> so. Or just like if you had two hearts instead of one and one mm -hmm. could keep working while the other one was punctured, yeah. you could like survive a battle. Yeah. Anyhow. You know, uh, I choose to believe the other option, which is entirely more fun, but you know, you can believe it's just two hearts. <laughs> 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 but yeah, um, seeing her just reminded me how different Klingons have become. And I don't know if I like that they keep, why can't people just keep their hands? off of Klingons. They needed an update. I understand we can't have people running around in blackface like they were in the original series. But you know, next-gen Klingons were good. They were good. They were real good. 
Did you notice the updates to the Andorians and the Tellarites? Yeah, yeah. And like the in, in the Andorians have these sort of like facial like cut-ins and features and stuff. And the Tellarites had tusks. Yeah, the Tellarites had tusks as well. Tellarites have always been a weird species for me. I mean, I guess it's because they're not like pretty, but... I don't feel like we know much about them. We've never had a Tellarite crew member or anything. They're, they're always sort of like, you know, that extra species in the Federation, right? But maybe we'll see more Tellarites in uh, Discovery. But I think we're leaving the Resistance behind a little bit and hanging out with with uh, yeah. Emperor Giorgio yeah, in the next I mean, episode. We're, we'll see if that Resistance even survives because Giorgio, like, Giorgio the showed hell up. out of that planet. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> Rip. Rip Sarek. <laughs> Rip the Prophet. We've talked about Andorians, Tellarites, Klingons. Where are they all in our galaxy? And can we calculate sort of the odds that we should encounter one of them? Let's do some math. Okay, Live. so... <laughs> I know. <laughs> Over the radio. <laughs> we'll see if this works. Anyhow, so the Drake equation, again, is N equals a bunch of numbers multiplied together. What's that first number that we multiply? The first number is R sub star, which is the rate of star formation in the galaxy. Mm. I actually have no idea how fast stars are made. I, I'd assume there are a lot. The, the universe is big. There, there are a lot of stars. It's estimated that there are about 100 billion stars in our galaxy, mm -hmm. that order of magnitude. And our galaxy is how old? About the age of the universe. It's younger than the age of the universe. Yeah. The age of the universe is 13.7 billion years so this old. This is an order of magnitude calculation. So 10 billion years. Yeah. Sounds good to 14 me. 14 is 10. 14 is 10. Pi is 3. Pi squared is 10. <laughs> exactly. You're is the spirit of order of magnitude. This is how people actually think about these problems sometimes because the numbers are just often so big that it doesn't matter if you're just trying to get a grasp of how big your answer is, what the little details are. So 100 billion stars in the galaxy divided by 10 billion years is 10 stars per year. But I happen to actually have looked this up, and mm -hmm. it's more like one star per one year. One star per year? And one lonely little star? Yeah, I mean, you can think of that. The Milky Way is kind of already full of stars right now. Yeah. There are pockets where, of course, there's plenty of star formation happening, but it's actually more like one star All per right, year. All right, so let's take the real answer. Okay. Because, you know, one is a good number as much as ten is. It's really easy to multiply. Fly by one. Yeah. You know, it's almost as easy as it is to take a number <laughs> to the one power. <laughs> okay. The next number that we need to multiply against the rate of star formation is the fraction of stars that have planets. See, I actually do know something about this, and it's also a really easy number. The same very easy number, one, which one. is pretty cool, something we didn't really know until pretty recently. We didn't know that there were so many planets out there, but astronomers have been doing a great job of using a whole bunch of crazy ideas to find these things and go planet hunting and just like every time a new scientific publication comes out where astronomers publish it's just like we found these new planets and this is what they're like and here's where they are it's just it's it's crazy how fast they're finding these things one of my favorite astronomy professors said that we have embarked on the age of planet gathering uh, in a reference to like hunters and then <laughs> gatherers instead of planet hunting now we're planet gathering in the bushels by the thousands and so yeah just like elise said we're finding so many planets out there and it really seems like almost every star has out there one. has at least one planet so the next number that we need to multiply by is the number of earth-like Earth planets earth-like for planetary uh, system isn't andoria a frozen moon yeah so maybe you should say a few words about that so the reason we groan is Mike and I are teaching a class on astrobiology right now. Well, Mike is teaching it and I'm a TA. We're both technically TAs. But actually today, Mike gave a lecture about how the habitable zone, you might have heard it called the Goldilocks zone. It's this area in space around a star. You can think of it like a donut around a star in which it's not too cold and it's not too hot for a planet the size of Earth to have liquid water on its surface. But this doesn't take into account anything that's important. It takes into nothing that's important. It doesn't take into account the atmosphere of the planet. It doesn't take into account whether or not that planet is tidally locked to its star, which means it's like the moon always faces 
the same face towards the Earth. These planets always face the same face towards their star, which can have imp implications for habitability. It doesn't take into account the kinds of crazy biospheres that you can have that don't need liquid water on the surface. You can have subsurface biospheres. You can have icy moons around gas giant planets that have liquid water oceans and everything that some people think life needs to get started. You could even imagine life living on a rogue planet that's heated by its own radiogenic heat, where the life exists below the frozen outer shell. So this whole idea of a habitable zone is almost like a most pessimistic estimate for where we could find life. But I mean, if we're looking for life like us, it's probably not too bad of an idea to think about, you know, a, a surface dwelling civilization with an oxygen atmosphere that would allow like combustion engines and stuff to, to happen. Like we're not, squid probably aren't gonna make spaceships, but you know, I have hope for Europa squid. So <laughs> let me see if I'm reading you right here. So Drake formulated this equation with N sub E as the number of Earth-like planets mm -hmm. that a planetary system will have. And what I think you're trying to say is that we should expand N sub E to not mean the number of Earth-like Earth -like planets, planets, but just habitable bodies. Okay, let's but, do that. But are we, are we going to do that, or are we just going to take our most pessimistic estimate and see where it takes us? Star Trek is about optimism. optimism. <laughs> All right, let's be optimistic. How many habitable worlds do you think there are in a planetary system? So let's think about our own system here. It's the only one that we can think of, that we've really seen. We have exoplanetary systems that we can talk about in a second. You could argue that we know the Earth is habitable. Um, Venus was likely habitable early in its history. Mars could be habitable, depending on what kind of crazy microbe you are. And then we've got all of these crazy icy satellites out in the solar system beyond the asteroid belt. And I would say there's like two promising candidates, Europa and Enceladus, but there are other weird candidates like Titan and some people even think Triton. So I would say a conservative estimate for our solar system would be four or five. Yeah, well, let's go with three. <laughs> yeah, three's a good number. It's like pi. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I think this is really a, a revolution from the past couple of decades that mm -hmm. Frank Drake would not have dared to guess any number larger than one for mm -hmm. sure. I mean, one was an extreme to say that every single planetary system out there would have had a habitable world similar to Earth. When we extend this similar to Earth to just being habitable in the general sense, to our understanding of all these different crazy bodies out there, like you were saying, Europa and mm -hmm. Titan, the number can definitely increase more than one. I mean, even if we don't expand it that far, we've seen planetary systems that have seven planets that lie within the traditional Goldilocks zone, or very close to it. Very close, yeah. It's like four that are Trappist right system. Bag. Yes, might, I think there's yeah. three inside, and then, and then one that might be mm -hmm. on the outer edge. And then you've got some that could be like frozen worlds or... Mm -hmm. or Greenhouse worlds, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Let's say three. Let's say three. The next one that we need to multiply by is the fraction of habitable worlds that generate life. Ooh, so now we're starting to get speculative. This really depends on kind of what you think it takes for life to get started. And Mike and I are optimists about this. And we've already decided that this is a Star Trek universe where we're just going to be optimistic. But depending on who you ask about how life begins, you might hear from people that life could be a very natural consequence of geochemistry. And there are a lot of places on the Earth that have geochemistry that very closely mimic, not really mimic because they came first, but just emulate what we see in life. There's this really funny thing cells do to store energy. Instead of just using the energy that they can already get, they keep pumping hydrogen ions outside of their membranes and letting them fall back in well the in the mitochondria to, this is how we make if you've ever heard of atp in your biology classes it's just basically the energy currency for cells instead of you know paying for work in dollars they pay in atp and the way they make it is by doing this crazy thing where they use energy to pump protons across a membrane to let them fall back through and spin their basically this turbine, this protein that looks like a turbine that makes ATP. And why would something do that when they're using energy to do, they're losing energy in this process that they could have exploited. But a couple of ways that people are thinking about life beginning start in places where there is a natural 
gradient of protons that early life could have taken advantage of to spin its first turbines to make energy currency. So we're just sort of trying to emulate those beginning conditions. So somebody who thinks like that would tell you that life is very much a natural consequence of geochemistry because we still use it to keep ourselves going and it's what we came from. There are other ideas that might think of life as being sort of like a Frankenstein event where you've got, you know, random organic molecules floating around and they get zapped and, oh, by chance we get life. But Mike and I are optimists, so we're going to say one. <laughs> I 100% agree with that. Let's say one. But this whole discussion is very complicated. And if you gleaned even 10% of what Elise yeah. just said about the origin of life... We should do a whole a plus. episode on this. Yeah. I agree. But yeah, coming soon... <laughs> coming soon. ...to a podcast near you. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about the origin of life, mm -hmm. and we'll explain this a little slower and in a little more detail. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I know a Star Trek episode that can lead us off on that oh, one, Oh, yeah. Too. It was Q and his soup. Q and his soup. But yeah. that will be for another time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've got the fraction of habitable planets that develop life. What about the fraction of worlds that generate life that then evolve intelligent life? This is harder. This is really hard because in all of life's diversity, we've only seen the kind of complexity that you need for intelligent life happen once at its most basic level. All life that you could consider intelligent on Earth belongs to this group called Eukarya, which basically are our cells and other eukaryotes have cells that are more complicated, larger, have more different subunits than bacteria and archaea, which are the two other big groups. And archaea are basically, you would think of them as looking a lot like a bacterium, acting a lot like a bacterium, but just often they have strange metabolisms and they're just capable of doing a lot of weird things. They have a different evolutionary history than bacteria, but they're still single-celled organisms. Most of the tree of life is archaea and bacteria. Almost all of it is. And a lot of the eukaryote tree is still single-celled life. There's only one little tiny like sprig of a branch off of the tree of life that is multicellular. And most of that's like worms and you know gunk on your shoe and fungi and nothing that could transmit. But this, this leap to eukarya even, this leap to worms, this leap to a protist or an amoeba, this happened once in all of evolutionary history. And unlike the origin of life, which happened very, very soon after the Earth formed, this happened billions of years after life had begun. So it seems like getting from a single-celled organism to a multicellular organism, or even just a more complicated single-celled organism, is really hard. Um, and then going from there to intelligence. I think once you've got a eukaryote, though, you can get to intelligence because it's just a niche. It's just one more way of carving out a place for yourself in the ecosystem. And there's life, so many... If there's a way to do something, life does it. And there are so many intelligent species right. on the Earth. Yeah. We've got whales. Dolphins have names. They refer to each other by names, and they have culture. You've got octopi and squid, um, which are pretty smart. Um, you've got crows. us, uh, yeah. you've got crows and ravens, right. which are amazing problem solvers. You've got raccoons, which have been demonstrably proven to be more intelligent if they grow up in cities. Like they, they are smart enough to develop problem solving skills when they need to. So I, I mean, I would argue there are multiple intelligent species on the earth and we're not even talking about transmitting species yet. We're just talking about smarts, but all of them belong to this one group, Eukarya, and eukaryotes only happen once. So I would be more conservative about, this, conservative about this. I don't know what fraction I'd say, though. I, again, agree with everything that Elise just said. It does seem to me that one big hurdle in the evolution of life on Earth was this transformation between very simple life mm -hmm. and more complex forms of the cell. Mm -hmm. And when you just have one data point, for this so kind of thing hard. and no real like geochemical precedent for it to base it on yeah we can't argue like, like oh there are systems in the earth that you know imply that this is a process that like, should happen yeah but then everything that elise said about oh the fact that after you start building higher order multicellular beings 
that you will probably f- develop some kind of intelligence, intelligence because of the social structures that are associated with mm-hmm. those types of... Hunters just get smart. It's just sort of something that happens. If you're a group right. hunter, you get more intelligent. And so it's not so crazy to say that, oh, you may develop more than one intelligent species on a planet, like maybe like the Zindi. The Zindi. Yeah. yeah. So this fraction, this number, uh, fraction of intelligent species, I think can actually in principle exceed one because you can have more than one intelligent species mm-hmm. on but a planet. But the likelihood of getting... A biosphere going that allows intelligence to even occur yeah. seems unlikely. So in all of like life's about four billion year history, we mm-hmm. have one event in which we go from simple to complex. So, so we could be real pessimists and say that the probability of this happening is one in four billion. <laughs> but that seems a little bit sad. Yeah. You know, it does seem hard, and I don't think that it will happen on very many worlds yeah we could narrow down you know because we included worlds that were habitable that would get life like europa and mars but which might not be suitable for an intelligent species like an intelligent species in a huge surface biosphere that would allow for large organisms because size seems important when you're going to get a brain right you might want a surface air breathing biosphere in order to have intelligent life or like civilizations because bake, making tools and like ironworking, it just is not possible underwater. Right. So we might want to just take our fraction, maybe a third. Maybe we assume every earth-like planet gets intelligent life. Okay. Yeah. Let's do, let's do a third. Yeah. I have a, a question that I, that I am embarrassed to ask because I don't actually know the answer to this. And I think I should, mm-hmm. which came first, the great oxidation event or the development of eukarya. Eukarya came after. Eukarya yeah. came after. Mm-hmm. All eukarya are obligate aer- aerobes. So, 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 I was just thinking that. I was just thinking that. That's an. If that's the case, then that means that oxygenic photosynthesis is yet another barrier you need to cross first before you can get eukarya. Mm-hmm. Because the fact that all eukarya are obligate oxygen breathers Mm -hmm. means that there is some energetic demand to having such a complex cell that only oxygen can provide. And oxygenic photosynthesis is something that things do in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of lineages that do it, but really there was one group that just did it so well, the cyanobacteria, that this was just the, the revolution. And it really only happened this one time as well. So, okay. So as you can tell, there are a lot of spin-off episodes that we can start talking about here. I think This is why we start the class with the Drake equation. Exactly. Yeah, because it opens up so many questions like this. And so I think we're going to have definitely an episode talking about evolution because mm-hmm. you're taking an evolution class right I now am, and we'll have I so am. much to talk about, My especially just had a worm named after her. It's pretty exciting. Once you come back from the Galapagos, that will be an amazing episode mm-hmm. to talk about. I think we should talk about photosynthesis as well. Oh my gosh. Okay. Let's just move on before this. <laughs> so are we going to go for a third or are we just going to chop that third in half uh, because photosynthesis is hard? Uh, okay. One sixth. Well, you know, a sixth is a third. Uh, a sixth is a third. Uh, Let's just How do a, a tenth. A tenth. Okay, fine. A tenth. That's easy. Okay. No, if we do a third, then we just go to one. Yeah, that's true. But okay, we're smart. We can handle numbers other than one and three. <laughs> Are you sure I'm a geologist? <laughs> no, we got this. We got this. Let's do a sixth. Let's do a sixth. Yeah. Okay, so we're at one half. Yes. Yes. That's right. Okay. Okay. All right. Now we need to multiply by the fraction of intelligent life that develops communication, technological communication that can radiate out into space. So let's take species with cultures on the earth, right? So that's dolphins and us, really, that have cultures. And I think you could probably argue certain birds have cultures as well, like intelligent, like ravens and stuff. So maybe that's like one in three sort of a thing. It's a fraction sort of on the order of... um, It it seems like you'd really only get one species that is able to make technology its strategy because that species will change its environment to suit it and that will influence other species as well. I I think it's not unreasonable to say one or we could go the Zindi route and say five. (laughs) (laughs) But if you've got a complex society, you're going to develop tech. Like if you're capable of beginning agriculture, you're going to get to where we are. So I think it's one probably. Eventually, you will develop technology if, if you can build a, if you can build complex societies, which is what we accounted for in the previous.
question, right? Yeah, yeah. We're Given sort of changing time. these Drake equation parameters a little bit as we go along to make them more updated, but it was done in the 60s. We're allowed to innovate. Right, yeah. Star Trek <laughs> has changed so much since the 60s. So the Drake equation should be allowed to do the same. And it has. There are plenty of papers out there about new ways of thinking about the Drake equation. Yeah. Okay, the last thing we need to multiply by is the lifetime of a civilization. civilization. Ooh. Well, do we want to go with Star Trek humanity? or Because if we go by Star Trek, we know we're at least around till the 29th century. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but if we look at our own civilizations, I mean, Rome lasted fi like 500 years, people say. But once Rome fell, it's not like human civilization fell. It's really not a society-level thing. It's a species-level thing. Because... The species will carry on and lose a little bit, but, you know, get back up and pick up where things were left off eventually. I don't know. What's the lifetime of a transmitting civilization? So like Elise said, the question that you are asking really influences what you actually mean with all of these parameters. Mm -hmm. So the original question that Drake was asking is, how many civilizations out there could Earth actually hear with radio waves? Because mm -hmm. that was the way that everybody assumed information would be transmitted over long distances. Mm -hmm. Today, we still use radio waves, but we also use other means mm -hmm. of okay. communication. It's all still mostly, I think, electromagnetic radiation. But maybe one day, we'll, I mean, we just discovered gravity waves. I don't know. We should maybe ask someone at LIGO before we speculate about this. But there could be other ways to transmit information across the across space. And maybe one day we'll discover the magic of subspace. Sub and spores? I don't know. What, but, um, but yeah, so like I said, the, the question... My network. Right, the question really changes, right? Um, if you're talking about the lifetime of a civilization versus the lifetime that it uses radio waves, you're asking two very different questions. Mm -hmm. So for us, why don't we just go with the lifetime that a civilization persists and could emit any Anything form... Anything weird that we could see in the sky. Yeah. Because, you know, if, if they're like exploding spores at us, we'll probably see that. Hopefully. Yeah. I would like to see that coming. I <laughs> and I think the way subspace works is that they just send normal sort of EMF radiation through like kind of folds in space so that it can arrive faster than it would otherwise. So we'd probably still be able to pick that up if, if we were looking hard enough. Mm -hmm. Do we want to go with 29th century? Let's go with 29th century. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we're in the 21st century, but we started broadcasting the 20th. Yeah. So that's nine centuries. So a thousand years. A thousand years sounds good to me. Yeah. Okay, so let's multiply all these things through. So the number of transmitting civilizations in the galaxy currently equals R sub star, the rate of star formation, which is one star per year, mm -hmm. times the fraction of stars that have planetary systems, which was one. Yep. So that's one times one times the number of habitable worlds per planetary system, which mm -hmm. we said was on average three. So that's one times one times three. So that's three. And times the fraction of habitable worlds that will generate life. Which we say is one. Which we say is pretty darn close to one. So that's one times one times three times one. Which is three. Which is three. I'm good at math. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fraction of worlds with life that generates intelligent life. Yeah, intelligent society building life. And we said that was about a sixth. A sixth. So yeah. one times one times three times one times one over six is a half. A half. Okay. There. Two more. And then we said the fraction of intelligent life forms that will develop communicating technology. Mm -hmm. And remember, we're thinking of intelligent as complex society builders. So we already eliminated all of those subsurface, like whales on Europa, you know, speaking but not able to create tech mm -hmm. without hands. <laughs> So we said one, right? We said one. Eventually, those will develop mm -hmm. technology. So to recap, we have one times one times three times one times one-sixth times one. Which is still a half. And then we multiplied by the lifetime of these civilizations. Which Star Trek tells us should be about... A thousand years so, or more. So we've got 500 friends out 500. there. 500. In our galaxy alone. Yeah. yeah. I can name a couple of them already. Klingons, Vulcans. Please not Klingons. <laughs> I don't want that war. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll take Vulcans. You know, Andorians seem fun. I like their little rivalry with Vulcan. But Tellarites? <laughs> Pig people? All I right. like Saru's species. The Kelpians. The Kelpians, yeah, deer people. Mm -hmm. Pretty cool. 
Yeah, 500 neighbors in our galaxy. That was a fun exercise. I, I had a lot of fun discussing these different parameters with you, Elise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we I, should do more order of magnitude calculations. I totally agree. Actually, we agree on quite a lot of things. Yeah, um, it's sort of why we speak and do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so this has opened up a whole bunch of new ideas for this podcast, and I'm not sure exactly which one we're going to pick next. Honestly, you're giving a lecture on Monday about subsurface life. And if we can tie that to some kind of Star Trek episode, yeah, we can give an abbreviated version. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, if you want to talk about I don't know enough life. about silicon-based life right now. I'd need to do some, some serious Googling. Well, maybe maybe we'll rewatch The Devil in the Dark from TOS. Oh, what a good episode. And talk about silicon-based life. Or we'll talk about any Something of these other things. Something completely different. Yeah. I like the origin of life. Okay. I think especially because I probably confused way too many people with my proton pump mm-hmm. rant. It might be a good idea for you to explain that a little better. Yeah, that's definitely one that's coming in the future. It's coming. Well, whatever we end up deciding to do, we'll put something out related to astrobiology next week, probably, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thanks again for joining me, Elise. This was super fun, and we'll see you guys all in a week. That concludes episode 26 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed listening to our Drake equation calculation, and feel inspired to try evaluating the equation yourself. No one has a monopoly on Drake equation values. If you come up with a completely different number, that's great. Scientists over the past 50 plus years have hotly debated the answer, and that kind of discussion is exactly what Dr. Drake was hoping for when he first scribbled the equation on a board. You know, when I ask my astrobiology class to evaluate the Drake equation, I tell them that it's really not important what number they come up with at the end. What's important is thinking critically about the terms in the equation and trying your best to justify whatever guess you make with sound reason and logic. And if you end up getting a number that is greater than one, just like Elise and I did, ask yourself, so why haven't we heard from anyone yet? That's called the Fermi Paradox, and is just yet another exciting topic that I hope to talk about on a future episode. Till then, you can tweet your thoughts to me at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I, and to Elise at mcutsy. That's E-M-C-U-T-T-S-Y. Keep enjoying Star Trek Discovery, you freakasauruses, and we'll see you out there. Let's test the sound. Tardigrade. Tardigrade. How's grading going? <laughs> Life is defined as an entity that consists of one or more cells. Cells and tardigrades. I'm triggered by the word cell. Trigger by cells. <laughs> Chemistry. Also, I hate it when people say chemical system because I'm like, all right, everything's made of chemicals, y'all. Like, if I put two blocks of lead next to each other, it's a chemical system. Did you know what's not a chemical system? The EMH. you know you know i'm pretty sure i wrote on your the set is q alive (laughs) that was like my one comment i just wanted to know what your answer was that's it i maybe q like transcends life yeah there's definitely different tiers to life and like q does something else for the universe i have no idea what he increases the entropy of picard's brain (laughs) that's what he exists to do (laughs) 